Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacking. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... This is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. (laughs) G'day and welcome again to Democracy Sausage from the ANU's modest studios on the shore of Lake Burley Griffin. Marnie, you heard it here first. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian Studies Institute, also the School of Politics and International Relations. Guess what? This, this episode is not about COVID, lockdowns, vaccine failures, or even $10 billion worth of discretionary ministerial largesse, at least not directly anyway. But what it is about runs underneath all of those things and the public perceptions of governments and parliaments and service delivery and quaint old notions like probity and accountability and value for money. Some of you will be familiar with the term festschrift. Doesn't that roll off the tongue, festschrift? In essence, a book of essays in honour of a highly respected person, usually an academic. In this case, that academic is the brilliant political scientist Professor John Wanner, and the book is called Politics, Policy and Public Administration in Theory and Practice, Essays in Honour of Professor John Wanner. I like to think it's, uh, it's great that these academic books have such pithy titles. Um, it's edited by Andrew Podger, Michael de Percy and Sam Vis- Vincent, and I'm delighted to say Andrew Podger is with us today. He's an honorary professor at the School of Politics and International Relations. He's a former public service commissioner. Andrew, welcome back. Thank you very much, Mark. Great to be here. Congratulations on this book. I, I was very pleased to, or honoured to be able to do the, the, the editing of this book uh, for John, and I was very keen for the book not just to be about what John's done and what his contributions have been, but to have some new stuff, some new material that would uh, attract a wider audience in the areas that he specialised in. And take the debates forward in some of these areas. Absolutely. And the, and the inquiry. Yeah. So, so we've sort of teased out things in financial management and budgeting issues or the politics, including politics of Queensland, a bit more on public administration. But a theme around it is, is around John's own style, which is how do you connect research 
and practice. Yeah, that's very much a theme we'll, we'll look at here. Also with us are Professors Catherine Altas and Glyn Davis. Glyn Davis is the Chief Executive Officer of the Paul Ramsey Foundation, Australia's largest philanthropic trust, but he is also a Distinguished Professor of Political Science in the Crawford School of Public Policy here at ANU. He's another ANU alum. He's a former Vice-Chancellor of Griffith University in Queensland and Melbourne University. He's done it all. Welcome, Glenn. Mark, thanks very much. It's great to be here. And Catherine Althaus. Catherine is an ANZOG Deputy Dean and Chair of Public Service Leadership and Reform at the University of New South Wales, based here in Canberra. She's an expert in the intersection between economics and politics and sound public policy. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much, Mark. It's great to be here. Now, a common theme in this book is, as um, um, Andrew was just saying, is John Wanner's insistence on making academic research that he was involved with relate to public administration in practice. So it contains chapters from theorists, this book, but there are also some practitioners and a few younger scholars with whom uh, John Wanner was, uh, you know, on whom John Wanner was influential. Yes, John, uh, one of his uh, themes, he had a lot of PhD students he supervised, but a large number of them were actually public servants on secondment uh, here, and and we we're pleased to have a couple of them uh, as as authors of chapters, and also Michael De Percy, one of the editors, was also one of his former PhD students. Yeah, that's really good. And of course, uh, one of those others who's been a student of John Wanner's at time, and I should just say, we, we're sort of talking about John Wanner in the past tense, but he's still very much with us, <laughs> lest anyone conclude otherwise. Um, but one of those uh, people who'd been uh, benefited from John Wanner's uh, uh, teaching was the current shadow treasurer, Jim Chalmers, who provides a lovely foreword to this volume. And of course, uh, he's also a former ANU alum. Uh, and he's a former guest here on The Sausage. So it was nice to read uh, uh, Jim Chalmers' words about John Wanner and and to think that um, some of John's wisdom has gone into a person who you know, is, um, is very close to some very powerful office in this country, uh, bearing in mind we're not far off an election and, uh, you know, who knows what could happen. Who knows what can happen. I mean, uh, but uh, I think John's taught quite a few people who have ended up in positions of some influence, uh, but uh, both in both in politics, but also in senior positions in public uh, in the public sector. E- exactly, uh, we were very pleased that uh, Jim Chalmers actually gave the speech at the function we held held uh, here in Canberra. This was a Festschrift function. Yeah, we we had a had a workshop, but we also had a dinner. Right, and Jim uh, gave a very humorous speech which I then helped him turn into something we could actually publish rather than what he <laughs> couldn't publish. Yes, he does make a reference in in his uh in his um foreword to uh, to that event and describes it as a light-hearted roast I think with with the terms he used and then and then sort of says self-consciously perhaps not appropriate for a for a um you know the written word but um, nonetheless uh, it's a, it's a very warm tribute that he that he um pays to John Warner in that foreword. Yes, I think it's a very, very enjoyable read, but it also captures John's own personality and style. Yeah. There's also a chapter, I should say, in this book by Democracy Sausage's own uh, Dr. Maria Taflaga, uh, which is, which is great to see her, her, um, and she's true to the, uh, true to the genre as well. Her chapter is called Policy Making Party Executives and Parliamentary Policy Actors. Yes. M- Maria did her PhD here at ANU, uh, supervised by John, uh, on the Liberal Party. 
but uh, this chapter is quite a useful reminder, particularly to public servants, that policy isn't just a matter of what they do with their ministers and the ministerial advisors, that actually there is a house over there on the hill and there are a lot of people there who actually do contribute a great deal to policy and are worth listening to. Perhaps the parliament could do more to uh, be more influential and, and more effective in what they do, but hers is a very useful reminder. Yes, that's a very good point. And there are many people who are very conscientiously doing that job as well. And I think it's important to say that uh, it's it's not always easy being, uh, you know, doing all of that policy work and then seeing what comes out at the other end. Sometimes that can be very rewarding. Other times it can be uh, it can be a little underwhelming, I suppose, because politics is, um, uh, well, it can be a um, a dispiriting business, let's let's put it like that. Catherine, uh, let, let me start with you and just sort of uh, ask you if, if, if this is not an unreasonable question to briefly summarise what makes John Wanner's academic contribution to our understanding of policy so unique. Yeah, sure, Mark. So I think I was particularly struck uh, when I reflect on John's work as well as reading the book, um, just the tradition in Australia where we combine political science, public policy and public administration together. And that's a really unique approach, actually. So it's very different from, say, North America, which has got very distinct schools for each of those three categories. But the Australian tradition has married them together over time. Um, you know, it, it speaks back to those days when that was a, you know, a, a hallmark, if you like, of the Australian uh, approach towards public administration, actually, is the marriage of those three. So that was something that particularly struck me. And John is emblematic of that because of his expansive approach to different topics that he was curious about, that he explored, that he commented on, and that's kind of what makes for such a rich uh, approach uh, that he brought uh, into his publications, but also his work in the media. Um, and I think his ability to span those different areas is one of John's huge characteristics that it's really hard for people to compare. Um, so for me, those are sort of couple of key things that I think really stand out. I mean, I've benefited from that myself. John was one of my instructors. I had Queensland politics with John, so that was a, a hallmark for me. And, um, yeah, he just brought that kind of tradition uh, and made it come alive. He he actually uh, started off, his main interest was in industrial relations and particularly uh, unions and the way they operated within the industrial relations system. I remember having one of his very early books when I was studying industrial relations at Adelaide University. Um, and but but he he then very much moved once he'd gone to Griffith University in Queensland he he very much moved into um, specialising not exclusively because as you say he had a very Catholic approach to uh, to to his um, fields of study but uh, he um, he very much became in, uh, identified with understanding in a very rich way uh, the unique culture of Queensland politics which uh, uh, it's always been a mystery to the rest of us. <laughs> he had a great way of, um, you know, just he always knew what the state of play was with all the electorates. It was just something you could rely on John to tell amazing stories. I think uh, Jim Chalmers talks about that and his ability to hoover up stories from wherever he went and he loved recounting those. Like I remember lots of stories he told about Fabianism and, and uh, you know, encounters that he'd had with different students and, you know, he always brought a laugh into the process. But uh, there was always a quick mind in terms of the insights that he brought in terms of how things would play out in the parliamentary process, uh, if we reference Maria's work, uh, as well as the, um, you know, the contemporary issues that confronted Queenslanders. Um, and he could have a laugh about that, but he took it seriously too. So um, that's something Chris Salisbury, I guess, took up, you know, the, the, the lament that we're probably missing some of that 
in the contemporary world, we don't have the opportunity as much to concentrate on you know, individual state-based approaches to politics. So hopefully we can resurrect that over time and, and in honour of what John has contributed. And Glyn Davis, you've obviously had uh, great expertise in um, Queensland politics as well. Uh, perhaps uh, could I ask you to also expand on John Warner's unique contribution, uh, that melding of, of policy and practice uh, and, uh, and the way he became such an authority in Queensland politics. Uh, thank you, Mark. And I, th- I think Catherine did a wonderful job of evoking John the teacher, uh, the style, the informality, um, the huge amounts of information wrapped up in, in the presentation and, and the clear enjoyment in the content, uh, which brings teaching alive. There's something about listening to someone who cares about what they're talking to and finds it endlessly fascinating and, and has to remember to stop when they hit the hour uh, because it's it's been a really enjoyable discussion. I had the great pleasure of uh, starting my academic career with John. We were both appointed to Griffith University in 1985, which seems like an impossibly long time ago. And uh, we worked together very closely through those years designing the curriculum with our head of school, who was Professor Patrick Weller, um, and teaching our very first students, of whom Catherine was one, and Jim Chalmers came along a few years later, and there were lots of lots of great students. And I was reflecting on Jim's speech, which was very amusing at the dinner, but also his gentle reminder that he'd actually learned a lot as well as remembered all the, all the funny bits. And I had an <laughs> encounter with um, – uh, Gary Hargraves, who was a Liberal MP and briefly a minister. Member for many Morton, years ago. I believe, yeah. was it? Indeed yeah. so. And I, I ran into him at an airport once and he said to me with a genuine sense of astonishment, having now been a relatively new minister, he said, you know, all that stuff that you and Wana told me about, like how ministers work in offices and parliaments, he said, it all turned out to be accurate. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and I just remember the complete astonishment on his face as he said it. I took that as a huge compliment. I think it was meant as one. Uh, but it reminded me as well that um, John works without fear or favour. He's perfectly happy uh, to to give people an elbow or a bouquet on the way through. And I guess a pride, if you're teaching politics, of course everybody's trying to work out what your politics are when you're teaching them, right? I can remember students genuinely puzzled at the end of a, a course with John that they really couldn't work out where he stood. Yeah, that's a, that's a brilliant, brilliant uh, outcome, isn't it? Really, uh, it he's is. not trying to ram uh, his 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 own views down their throat so much as equip them to make you know those sorts of judgments for themselves. I, th- I think that also uh, won him respect with the public service. He worked very closely with the public service, but they trusted him because he wasn't going to betray his own or their. Uh, aspects. So, for example, he spent some time ensconced in the Department of Finance, uh, finding out just the way they work. And he spent another time in the Public Service Commission. And he had the trust of public servants, which he wouldn't have had if he had had a, a political brand mm. around him. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really interesting uh, observation. Uh, and I can think of a few teachers I had like that too. And I, I did really respect that. Uh, I also, uh, it, it makes me think, Glenn, of the journey that I've taken in, in recent years, having gone from journalism to into the academy. And I, I think about, I've often thought about some of the similarities, some of the, the similar skill sets that one can use in both of these endeavours. And it sounds to me like, in some ways, John Warner was years ahead of me, perhaps in reverse, though. He's 
Because the thing that comes out from what you're all saying and what I read in the book is how connected he was. Uh, you know, connect had many, many people trusted him. He would talk to lots of people. He would get firsthand uh, evidence from what's going on on the ground in whatever area he was studying and stay close enough to the ground so that he could make those sorts of judgments. And that's that's quite a journalistic skill in a way. It's one of the great challenges of journalism to, to, to you know, to be connected and to have that uh, that thing about you that invites people or makes people tell you things that perhaps uh, they might not tell others. You can see that also in in this book, but also in other th- books he's edited, and he's edited an awful lot of books. Uh, how many have got contributions from practitioners uh, explaining how they do their business, what the, what they're trying to achieve, and what processes they're using? So that uh, connectedness right across uh, has been important. I think there's probably um, that international as well as the local uh, dimension to John because he had this incredible hospitality uh, as part of his persona. But uh, he, you know, I remember a story with um, going to an interview at the University of Maryland in the US and uh, one of the interviewees, uh, one of professor of budgeting said to me, well, do you happen to know John Wanner's work? I said, yes, I do. You know, so there's that sort of international um, notoriety. He had those networks at the international level, but also at the local level, you know, he could talk to people in, you know, different parties, as Glenn mentioned, in terms of different political parties and be able to know what was happening on the ground, uh, you know, right there in the moment. So I think that was an incredible aspect of John. It's interesting to see, you know, one of the influences he had on international writing of public administration was that you could not look at financial and budgeting issues without also looking at public service management. And that connection was not actually accepted until John explained why, and that's now widely accepted internationally. And what can, can I ask you to explain that a bit more, what, what you mean by the, the link between budgeting and public service management? Well, when you're trying to talk about uh, – how do you get best value for money and the budgeting process? You've also got to look at the way in which the civil service operates. That's performance management. It's risk management. It's a whole range of things that are done on the management side, which actually makes sure that your budget decisions are actually effective and actually happen. And if you don't connect the two, uh, you won't actually achieve the results you're after. Right, and so the, 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 and some of those mistakes that have been made over years have, have gradually been identified through scholarship and through trial well, the, and error. The scholarship has is, is, is realised, and you can see that in, in things like Alan Schick's uh, material uh, and, and Everett Linkwith's material, saying recognising that John tied those things together in ways that hadn't been done before and is now more internationally accepted through groups like the OECD and so on. Before we get on to uh, some of those meteor issues, I wonder if I could ask uh, anyone who wants to respond to this really, um, what... Uh, what what role? And this is inviting you to do a bit of psychoanalysis, I suppose. But but what role do you think um, John's background played in his effectiveness as um, in, in all the ways that we've been talking about his his ability to talk to people, his sociability, his ability to win trust? Uh, 
He's the first person in his family to go to university. He comes to Australia as in, in that group that was often referred to as the 10 pound poms. Uh, you know, his parents moved to Adelaide. Uh, he goes to Brighton High School, not a million miles away from where I went to school, ends up at you know, University of Adelaide where I did. So I was reading his uh, chronology of, of his own background. It's, um, uh, apart from the fact that it evokes many, many similar memories, albeit uh, he's earlier than me, but, um, there's a strong sense of very much of working class boy. He says at one stage that when he's, his father sees his 20th book or whatever it is, he looks at the cover, makes some sort of slightly dismissive statement like, I thought you would have said all you had to say by now and puts the book down without ever looking in between the covers. Um, and he didn't say that with any bitterness. It's just a completely different world experience that his family, his parents had had. I wondered to the extent to which these things sort of mark him out as a different kind of academic from perhaps, uh, you know, more common middle class, often private school background that, that leads into the academy. Like a character in a D.H. Lawrence novel, you're thinking. <laughs> yeah. I think it, I think it's fair to say, Mark, that there's lots of um, people who were through Griffith who were very much from that mould, you know, in terms of first, first kids to go to university Right. Very affable, prided themselves on a working class background. Well, not uh, so was, much in Adelaide University where he did his undergraduate training though. No, but I think that, you know, in terms of his personal background, John did pride himself on being able to relate to working class people. That was yeah. something he did, you know, remark upon in different ways. And I think it's also his sense of humour. So the fact that he wasn't offended by what his dad said, you know, that's that's not unsurprising because John was very good at, at you know, having a laugh and, and could, you know, really take a joke and he played with that. And that was, I think, part of the trust building process as well and, and the way that he could relate to people was through humour uh, and storytelling. He loved stories. Um, so I think all of those three things for me really marked out, um, you know, what his background offered. True. And that north of England uh, approach that so often works well in Australia because it's a set of characteristics and a self-deprecating humour that, that works well in the setting and uh, makes them very likeable. And and very practical. There's a sort of a practical ethic at the basis of it and that, that, that practicalism, if I could invent that word, uh, just for the moment, uh, you know, Im- imbues itself through his uh, through his academic work, that it becomes all about what its practical impact can be. Let's take a very quick break and come back in just a moment. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, we were talking about John Wanner in terms of his background. Back to the book, Andrew. 
Um, can you point us to uh, perhaps some of the contrib- contributions in this book that readers uh, might look out for? Let me pick out uh, some examples, and I don't mean by these these are the ones the only ones there, but as examples of material, there's a it's quite a lot of material on budgeting and financial management, but there's a fascinating chapter by Stein Helgeby. Now Stein Helgeby was at the time he's writing this a senior officer in the Department of Finance. He's now the parliamentary budget officer. So you want to take notice of what he says about budgeting and financial management. He's in an important role. You certainly do. But but it's an interesting chapter because he challenges the Australian tradition of an annual budget covering all expenditures and all revenues. He doesn't say we shouldn't do that, but he says that we might be better served by greater clarity on overall financial parameters to set the constraints within which trade-offs can be made and then to allow decisions to be made in a more timely and responsive manner, giving more room for continuous disclosure rather than once-a-year disclosure and maybe also allowing more time to explore particular priority issues outside the annual budget uh, pressure cooker. Uh, He's also in his chapter talks quite a lot about well, where should we go now with uh, accrual accounting, uh, performance budgeting, and so on? So it's a fascinating uh, look at, you know, we've, we've had 30 years of reform in this area, and he's basically saying, I think we've still got to keep looking at this and, and take it a bit further. So that's, to me, a, a really interesting chapter. We talked previously about Maria Teflaga's chapter, but let me move on to Rod Rhodes. Now, Rod Rhodes, uh, his chapter provides a nice overview of developments in public administration, looking sort of through new public management and new public governance and sort of offering ideas of where should we go, where do we think the system's going to go now? What what are the next stages of reform? He uses the term decentering. I think he means that we should be paying more attention to local issues and local narratives and cha- and challenging central elites and their dominance of policy and management. Now, frankly, I'm not entirely convinced that this is what is going to happen, but it is an interesting perspective to consider. I think there are, in fact, continuing pressures of centripetal forces you know, like transport and communication technology and uh, and so on, But and maybe the extent to which there will be local communities. They're not necessarily geographically local. They might be different uh, forms of communities that you get through social media and so on. But... I think he's making the point that sometimes we have a tendency to over-centralise things uh, and that we need to think more widely about how do we connect with people and their own narratives. In the spirit of uh, John's own work, uh, the idea of things being relatable and practical, I'm I'm minded of what I heard David Fricker say just yesterday at the National Press Club. Uh, This is the head of the National Archives. And he was making the point that they intend to keep all of their offices open uh, in all of the capitals of Australia. Uh, he was trying to knock away or hit away the uh, suggestion uh, that has been around that uh, through for budgetary reason, reasons or digital access reasons or whatever else, uh, they might close some of these state offices. And he said, well, we don't, we don't have state offices uh, in those capitals because that's where the records are. We have them in those places because that's where Australians are. And it, it was a really interesting, I think, distinction making the point that the, the, the principal purpose of the National Archives, and this would 
you know, hold for a number of other functions as well, is about the service delivery and the access that uh, citizens can have to services. So I thought that was um, yes, a, I, I, a rewarding statement. Well, it's, it's interesting just looking at the COVID response. Now, here we're dealing with quarantine, which has since 1901 been a Commonwealth responsibility. But the facts are that even within that Commonwealth responsibility, the Commonwealth doesn't have the wherewithal on the ground and has had to talk to the states. And having the wherewithal on the ground, the actual ability to provide services there uh, is is critical to its success. So it may be that this point of decentering is right. Uh, I'm just not quite entirely persuaded, but I, but I all I'm trying to say, the chapters are worth a read. Yeah, uh, I know Rod's written about some of this stuff before, but here's a nice synthesis of this argument about the next steps of so public is administration. Decent- is decentering the same as decentralisation? I mean, we hear this come up time and time again, and we've been we've seen you know various attempts, some more successful than others, at moving the public service out of Canberra and moving it closer to the people and so it's a, forth. It's a bit similar, but I think he's also talking about responsiveness to local narratives, uh, local concerns and the way they're locally expressed. So it's not just bringing offices or, or services to people, but it's actually designing the services themselves. Yes, it's a more bottom-up right. Right. rather than distributed down. And, and the last one I was – last thing, I, and you expect me to say this a bit – I've got two chapters there that I've co-authored with uh, significant people. Uh, there's one with Hon Chan, who is probably the in- internationally the most expert in uh, the Communist Party's cadre system in China uh, and talking about, well, where is China going on their civil service? Now, John Wan has been interested in China now for 20 years and done quite a lot of work with them and particularly with Hon Chan. So it's an interesting reflection under President Xi, where is the Chinese approach to the civil service and their cadre system going? And then there's a chapter I've got with Peter Shergold, and Peter's uh, the main author of this chapter, and it's one you mentioned before uh, about there's a an overuse today of the pejorative term neoliberalism as if the reforms were all about an ideological push. And um, that push being the endless sort of contraction down of of of, of government, yeah. basically, and therefore services and smaller We're, public sector and yeah. And Peter and I have been saying, well, uh, from the perspective of those who are insiders in the public service, there wasn't ever a uh, an ideological uh, bent to what we're doing. It was a matter of incremental reform to improve the delivery of services, the effectiveness and efficiency of public service, uh, and the steps taken over a long period of time. And we tried to detail what it was we were doing and we were saying, along with all our uh, uh, colleagues from the 80s, 90s and 2000s, and trying to put that together and saying it wasn't the way a lot of the critics have been looking at it. Now, you can criticise the outcomes in many respects and you might want to reverse some of the things, but the idea that it was uh, a nasty, terrible right-wing agenda is just not the way any of the practitioners involved would have viewed it. Do I look slightly unconvinced? I'm, 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 I'm not entirely. I mean, we, we've heard terms like privatization, corporatization, um, 
outsourcing has become, you know, particularly common. We know there's a vast use of, um, of consultants, uh, by the public sector these days. Uh, in many cases, these will be people who used to work in the public sector and who've, who've been shed from it and, or have left it and, and are now operating in, in the quasi public sector as, or sort of private sector working in the public sector. Um, and people have seen services contract. They've seen, front-facing offices disappear. I know that a lot of this is a function of digitization and, you know, some of these are, are, are great improvements as well. But uh, the direction's I, felt like it's all been well, I, I in think, one way. Well, let me be, be clear on this in personal view. I think we have gone too far in some of this. I think we are using too many consultants and too much contracting out uh, at the moment. And I've said so publicly in a number of forums indeed, before uh, my submission for, for a parliamentary committee at the moment. But that's not to say that we have been captured by an agenda for 30 years of nasty neoliberalism, that in fact there has been quite pragmatic, careful consideration of how to improve value for money and how to improve the quality of public services. Sometimes, of course, mistakes have been made and you need to back off uh, in some respects. But the picture we are trying to defend is that we were looking at uh, genuine improvements in the quality and efficiency and effectiveness of services. Catherine, what, what's your view about this? Because the, Andrew makes the very interesting point about the advent of this pandemic and what it has shown up. I mean, for me, one of the things that has shown up is um, – the relationship between the citizens and the state. It is vastly different to what we've been told by a kind of a political orthodoxy that has reigned now for the best part of three decades. Um, we It turns out we do need government. It turns out we need big government at times. We need debt financing. Uh, we need essential workers. Uh, we need uh, we need we need essentially a big state at a time like this. And most of the logic before now has been in another direction. Mm, yeah, I think there's a whole range of things that come to mind for me. I guess um, responding to what Andrew and Peter's chapter was trying to argue, um, I'm sympathetic to the view that, you know, public servants themselves may not have been ideologically, uh, you know, disposed to that kind of a push. Andrew, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. Many of them, as you say, were very genuine in terms of um trying to achieve the best for Australia, best for all the citizens. Well, they'd be like turkeys voting for Christmas if they were voting for the, you know, endless privatisation of their own functions. Yeah, and I think, I think that um, it's a bit, for me, it's a bit like saying, well, we all are in a capitalist system but we don't go around talking about capitalism when we go and exchange goods and, you know, engage in market behaviour. So the fact that you're not using that language doesn't mean that there isn't um, an ability to frame it in that way. And that's part of the academic endeavour and scholarship to actually step back, do some of that analysis and make certain cases. For me personally, though, I think we've moved way beyond new public management um, in terms of the state of where we're at with uh, public administration in this country. Um, and I think there's lots of opportunities um, for Australia to rethink things and what's really interesting at the moment both in the in the scholarship but my sense is that we're seeing this in the community as well um, is that we're going back to the fundamentals of you know what we are as a liberal democracy what we are as a Westminster system and is this still where we want to be uh, do we want to open up different ideas you know if you take the notion of um, uh, ministerial responsibility or what it means to be representative in our system of government I think we're posing some really interesting challenges to that 
And if we think about the notion of getting closer to uh, citizens and to different communities, uh, we think about the you know, conversations and dialogues we're going to be having in a more serious fashion with uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities uh, and with what's happening with COVID, um, there is a natural kind of a dispersion of people actually outside of capital cities now, which was never been able to do in previous times, but it's happening by virtue of COVID actually. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of regional economies now starting to burgeon. We're seeing growth in um, different areas of Australia. And I think that's a really rich and exciting area for Australia to explore uh, in terms of, you know, our future possibilities. Um, some great ideas that are coming through from Indigenous knowledge there. And it brings some big public policy challenges as well because we could see uh, low-income earners, uh, the poor, pushed out of even some of those, um, those regional regional towns uh, because, mm. you know, there's suddenly demand for real estate. We see all kinds of uh, demands for new services. I mean, maybe maybe this is the process that, as Andrew says, in a kind of a bottom-up way but with uh, the need for a fair amount of intervention, you would you, you might see services being redesigned. Yeah, we're bound for a lot of disruption, that's for sure. Um, so we've got to do a lot of care and attention to unintended consequences and there is that role for government huge role for government in terms of thinking this through and being quite creative, working alongside of not-for-profits, community groups, the private sector. Um, I think there's, you know, so many opportunities to uh, explore some different ideas uh, and sort of take us to that tradition again that we do have in the Australian scene of the public service being part of an engine room of huge, expansive, really interesting ideas that can advance the country. Glenn, what have been the lessons for you out of or the things that have struck you really out of uh, the the crisis that we're currently in? In terms of, you know, the way I framed it before, um, you know, we, we saw a rebounding of trust when uh, the state's politicians, that, that, that is Australia's politicians, the states and the Commonwealth were seen to be working together through 2020. I mean, there were some frictions we all know about, but nonetheless, there was the National Cabinet and there was a sense of problem solving ahead of politics that seemed to uh, really uh, you know, recharge levels of trust, um, and we've seen a number of different you know changes that have come in since then. And you'd say 2021, as a result of the, the vaccine program and, and and some other things, has perhaps gone the other way. But have you been surprised by what it has revealed this crisis uh, uh, in terms of what Australians think about their governments, what the public service should do, what different levels of government should do, and how they should interact with each other? Oh, it's been a fascinating real-time experiment, hasn't it, in yeah. governance and, and public sector changes. Uh, I, I'm going to start by sharing uh, very much with Andrew the view that uh, the loss of capacity in the public service, particularly I guess here I'm thinking of the Australian public service, has been profound. It's been long run. It's not attributable to any one government. It's, run, it's had a 30-year run. And I think some of the problems we've now seen about logistics and service delivery and agility to get vaccines out and so on, reflects at least in part some of the loss of expertise. And the, what we once had an idea of is that public service needed redundancy in the sense of it needed capacity that could come into play um, when, uh, when you know, in a crisis like this. And it's not like we didn't know this was coming. Back in the 2008 in the 2020 summit, one of the topics was one day there'll be a pandemic. How would we respond? We need Practice. We need to practice this regularly. We need to develop the systems, and of course, all lost. Uh, but the other, the flip side of that is that the crisis has shown that that Australian inventiveness is still there. Mm. 
in policy terms because we have done things that seemed unimaginable. Um, we've had a universal basic income. We called it JobKeeper, um, but effectively it offered as a UBI to keep people mm. in employment, something we, you know, we used to pay people to be unemployed, uh, and suddenly we discovered it's a whole lot more efficient and socially effective uh, to keep people in jobs. The Liberal Party we went all it, Scandinavian for a moment there. It did indeed. <laughs> um, we got we got homeless people off the streets of all of our capital cities and into decent accommodation and with the proper wraparound services they should always have had. Um, so uh, and so on. You know, we had we had moratoriums on on our rent and and foreclosures. We. We moved really well to in, have internet, a universal childcare. I mean, it's a, a remarkable set of innovations done very quickly, not always done well. See earlier conversation about capacity, but nonetheless, an ability to move quickly. And the big thing I hope this crisis does is make us go back and ask the fundamental questions about what do we want from the state? What are our expectations? And then what's the state doing to make sure it, it has the ability to meet them? And that's a question that this COVID crisis has put into very sharp relief. Just to add to that, Mark, I think um, in the um, Indigenous politics space, this, as far as I can figure out, this could be the first time in history that an Indigenous population has fared better than a non-Indigenous population through a pandemic. That's an incredible success story, which just off the back of what Glyn said, you know, we should be celebrating and finding ways to make that become our norm. The other thing I'd, I'd mentioned to sort of is... One of the reasons why I think the trust went up in government is that for the first time for many years, government actually looked to expertise and acknowledged expertise uh, and and drew attention to it. Uh, and I think the 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 moving away from party politics to actually embracing some expertise and bringing the people along with it uh, helped. Now, we've had a few problems more recently around that where there's been uh, open disagreement among some of the experts, uh, but I think there are ways in which we could handle that better in the future. What I'm uneasy about is whether this uh, deferring to expertise and officials uh, and the role that they can play will continue Uh Fingers crossed, well, there's but, not I, a lot but of I'm not too sure about it. it. I think it's an excellent point you make, uh, but sadly there's not a lot of early evidence about it, at least not on the climate front, which is you know, the the, the problem of the age really. I mean this, the, the pandemic is the problem of now and, and we all hope that at some time in our, in our sort of you know, foreseeable future, this will be substantially resolved, if not completely resolved, but we'll, we'll have found, um, a, a path through it and some, some sort of level of, um, functionality beyond this, you know, this current crisis situation. But there doesn't seem to be much in the way of movement on climate change. It is well and truly caught up in, in the, in the political machinery. And the other thing I'd say, which, you know, uh, it may be hard for you to comment on, Andrew. I don't know. Um, you, you might want to just slap this down. I don't know. But um, I've had a sense that the public service itself uh, has been quite close to governments um, in in the mediation of some of that expertise uh, to the to the point where I think if I think about the Commonwealth Health Department messaging from the chief medical officer down, it has been less bullish than that in the states and was, for example, uh, invested in playing down the uh, emergency in the early days of the pandemic you know talking about you know people going out to events uh, uh, not 
you know, actively uh, discouraging mask wearing for a, for a time after other infectious diseases experts were saying they should. I mean, for me as a political observer watching that, I felt there was a relationship between the top level of those public service officers and the executive of government Um Perhaps a closer relationship yeah. than I felt completely happy with. Yeah, I I, I think that's true. I, I I do think that that the way in which the chief health officer and the head of the department sitting and standing beside the prime minister, the way that occurred, uh, blurred their respective roles mm. somewhat. But nonetheless, the de- the deferral to expertise I think was an important yes. and positive step. But let me say my my fear that this won't last. Is based in part on things like the sports rorts and the car park mm. rorts, where you are seeing ministers saying, "We were elected, therefore we could do what we like, and we don't need to take any notice of the advice coming from the public service." And the public service, in turn, has been uh, not as firm in its advice as it might have been in years of in, in days gone by, and that area of. Uh, uh, Political control of the public service, I fear me, still needs to be fixed. I agree. What what, uh, what do you think, Lynn, in terms of the uh, relationship between the public service at the top level and the government? I, I think of the easier facility for public service heads to be moved on if ministers uh, simply don't get on with them. Marry that with the growth of the ministerial office itself, the private staff. It seems to me there's been a kind of an overlapping of these roles in ways that didn't used to be the case. So we don't have the idea of the frank and fearless advice coming from the policy engine room that is the public service. We have something closer to a public service dedicated to finding the minister a way through, uh, you know, various problems, in some cases, very political problems. I wish I could disagree with you. Mark. So I I spent nearly two years working with a very fine panel and a very fine group of public servants on the uh, review of the Australian Public Service that was delivered to the government in this is the thirty review, late twenty nineteen. And one of the issues it tackled and gave a lot of emphasis to was exactly that relationship between senior public servants and the government. And it began the discussion with the quote from Barnett Joyce when he fired the head of the agriculture department some years ago, saying that the department wasn't responsive enough. And so he, he fired the CEO because that would that would make it clear who was in charge. And, and I'm sure it did, but not to the detriment of the public interest. Mm. Um, so the 30 review recommended strongly strengthening the relationship. The, the tenure of senior public servants uh restricting the ability of ministers to arbitrarily fire. Um, in a sense, I return to an older system that Andrew would have been very familiar with in his public service commission days, but even perhaps to an earlier system where actually you wanted to encourage public servants to offer frank and fearless advice and to say no to ministers. Um, and uh, that was unilaterally rejected by the Morrison government in its response. It rejected that and it rejected any constraints on ministerial advisors. It rejected any suggestion that ministerial advisors should be accountable in the same way that public servants are, even when they're spending public money. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I, I won't pretend otherwise, I despaired at that set of decisions. 
because what they signalled was the behaviour and framework that went on in the months ahead to give us sports rorts and to give us car parks and all of the things that we've mentioned. Um, all of that is enabled by a set of structural and institutional arrangements that don't have proper accountability, that don't have separation of powers where they should be separated, uh, and that have handed over much of the policy function to you know, unelected advisors who are not accountable through the mechanisms that we would hold the public service accountable. You can't call them to estimates. You can't do lots of things unless the ANAO uh, decides to explore what they've done. We never hear about it. That's and the Australian the National ANAO. Audit Office. Sorry, yeah. Thank you. And even when they do, there are no consequences. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we've hit a very difficult moment, I think, in the national life, and it needs to be addressed. And sometimes uh, in political world, we need governments and oppositions both to say, well, that didn't work out as we expected and hoped. Um, Whatever the good intentions that got us here, we now need to reverse course. Yes, it's a it's a it's a real difficult one, isn't it? Because it's a sort of thing you 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 don't have any trouble imagining an opposition might uh, you know, make the right noises about. But uh, when you're in government, you take all the all the trappings of government, the biggest ministerial office you can have, and the least amount of accountability that office might have. I I, I agree with you. I think um, it's a uh, it's a terrible situation when you actually have people who are employed on the public purse, but who exist in a kind of an accountability. Nether region, you know, not not uh, neither neither ministers uh, or MPs answerable to the parliament, and neither public servants answerable and and callable in front of uh, of uh, you know estimates committees and other parliamentary inquiries. Uh, and as we've seen, there are a whole lot of ways in which that can uh, that can um, that can go wrong. And 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 sports rorts is perhaps a good example where we see senior ministerial staff uh, critically involved in the allocation of public monies using a colour-coded spreadsheet to the advantage of the government. We see it with the $660 million that have been allocated for car parks, uh, many of which were signed off the day before the last election. I wonder, Catherine, whether these sorts of things don't have the political uh, cut through in the electorate. Maybe they do. Maybe we'll see the government get tossed out over it. But I wonder if we don't see the level of outrage in public simply because we have a fairly high resting level of cynicism about our politicians, and when we hear about things like using money to pork barrel, we don't. We're not that surprised, and therefore it doesn't shock us onto another track of thinking. Mm. Yeah, Australians, uh, as voters, tend to vote with the um, economic purse rather than some of the ethical issues at times. But um, mm. it'll be a wait and see with the with the next election, I guess. But I think the architecture of representation of our system does need to be re-looked at because we've already been changing it through ministerial staffers. We're changing it, quite frankly, too, with um, the role of um, policy think tanks, et cetera, uh, because no longer, as you said, is the engine room of policy advice and thinking just from the public service. And so, therefore, the, the, the usual belt and buckle sort of approach that we had that underpinned our initial Westminster approach is it's been shifted. But we haven't had those debates again in terms of where are we now, where do we want to be, and that's not going to come from the political sphere. Uh, it'll only come from an outrage factor from somewhere, whether it be an accountability office, as Glenn suggested, or perhaps from you know the electorate. So I guess we'll wait and see what uh, what time tells us. I think uh, there is a, a more positive line would be that I think there is a mounting concern about these things. Uh, there's a mounting concern about 
where are we with establishing a Commonwealth ICAC? Mm, uh, are yeah. there ways in which to uh, strengthen the capacity of the audit office? Uh, are there other things we can do to address this naked political power? Um, I think if I look back over 20 years, you've seen an increasing professionalisation of politics, yeah. being very clever at winning but not necessarily being very thoughtful about the policies of the administration around it. And so I guess- we have to treat treat our, our, our rules governing this a bit like the tax code, which is there are always people trying to game it. And the longer you have it stationary, the more it will get gamed, and so you need to keep adjusting it. You need to keep adjusting it, but you need to also remind yourself of the checks and balances and the institutional arrangements that we've always had. They need to be fine-tuned from time to time yeah. because of pressures, but you go back to fundamentals of the separation of powers, yes. the role of the parliament versus of all of the executive. Within the executive, you've got politics separate from administration, and the administration is neutral, it's professional, it's impartial. These principles you want to maintain, but you have to make adjustments because the world around it has changed. But the principles remain the same. That's right. And we, I, we should have an, a, a system where every public dollar spent is attached in an accountability sense, and that involves includes the salaries of ministerial staff, for example, and the the expenses that they have. Of course, but but it also means that you know they are paid for by the taxpayer. There should be more careful uh, uh, oversight of it. There should be a code of conduct around it. Yeah. There should be a, a framework within which they operate better than the framework we've got. But. I'm not. I'm not as uh, pessimistic in terms of. I, I do think there's a mounting cry for saying something needs to be done in this space, and the line coming from senior politicians that we are elected, therefore we can do whatever we like. I think it's it's not getting the credible run that it used to have. Well, I hope you're right, but I know that you and I live in Canberra, and sometimes it's uh, it's it's easy to uh, think that these things are having purchase when perhaps in some other parts of the country. Uh, as Catherine said, people are voting on more basic things like, you know, the 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 hip pocket rather than sort of abstract ethical questions or, you know, principles of governance or whatever it might be. Uh, look, we're, I'm afraid we're right out of time. Thanks so much for being with us, eminent professors Andrew Podger, Catherine Althouse, and Glyn Davis. Thanks for your thoughts today. For explaining what a fest shift is for a start, I, I, I've got to say most people that I spoke to had never heard of it, so it's, a, it's an interesting idea. And this is a really uh, engaging book. Uh, it's, uh, it's very easy to read. Uh, it's, uh, it's very very broad. There are lots of different topics, and I'd recommend it. You can actually access it uh, from ANU Press online as well as by a hard copy. Correct. Yes, and it's free online. Yeah, free online. That's uh, they're the magic words, free, uh, and uh, it's very much worth engaging with there. Uh, but uh, but also available in hard copy. So that's Democracy Sausage for this week. I'm Mark Kenny, and the wonderful Dr. Virginia Marshall will be in my chair for the next couple of weeks while I escape from the wettest and coldest winter that I can remember in a couple of decades in the national capital. She's really good, so uh, tune in and listen to what she's got in store for you, and uh, I'll see you when I come back. Ciao for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.